The New Disruptors is supported by MailChimp, celebrating creativity and chaos since 2001. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast devoted to the proposition that competency is a superpower. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. This podcast has a new home on the web at newdisrupt.org, where you can find show notes and links to our sponsors. Adam Lissagor didn't set out to be the face of advertising, but his acting and directing style mesh perfectly with the zeitgeist. It's a bit of irony without the snark. It's charming, straightforward, quiet, and informative. You've almost certainly seen his work repeatedly, and once you follow links in the show notes to watch some of his videos, you'll be able to recognize his work from now on. From his first video to promote an app he was co-developing to the massive amount of work done since, Adams defined a style that others now aspire to. But this wasn't a plan. We'll talk about how he got here. Adam, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. That was a lovely intro. Did you just ad-lib that? I know. Well, I'm glad it sounded that way. I did not. <laughs> I've been studying you, as I do all my guests, like a like you're under a microscope. Well, this is this is the fun part about the internet today is that everyone through Twitter, I mean, through, you know, social networks partly, but just through like there's a, I say zeitgeist, but it's like there's a sense that things are more connected than they used to be. And I think it's true. You pull a string one place and people tumble out the other. I was watching when uh, the folks who did Glyph, a previous guests on the show, when they put out the video for their Kickstarter in 2010, I'm like, isn't that Adam Lissagor on the iPhone <laughs> in there? And, and they were very grateful to you. But uh, you, you know, your work predates that a bit. I love the accidental happenstance of life today, too, that there's these mechanisms in place that let us have crazy careers we never intended to. You did not set out to become uh, – you have a 15-year plan to become the uh, guy who made app advertising uh, videos with a unique style. This was mm – -hmm. this is an all a happy accident, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was entirely accidental and I – I don't know how much of the sh story you'd, you'd want me to share, but I'll try to give it, give you the short version. I, I intended to be a filmmaker from a very early age. I went to school for that. I got out of school. I discovered visual effects and post-production. I learned a bunch of those tools. I was working in more traditional media, um, feature films, commercials, doing some editing, doing some compositing. I got bored of it about... 2006, 2007, about the, the the same time that I found that the web was becoming more interesting, not to me from a development standpoint, but from um, a communications standpoint. And um, the, I, I kind of tie it to, together zeitgeist-wise with when something called Ajax emerged. And you don't hear that term anymore at all. Oh, yeah. But Ajax used to represent sort of a collection of new standards that were developing f for web development that allowed for a new kind of live data animation to happen within a within a site without having to refresh it turned st what was static into dynamic and that kind of was interesting to me so i wanted to explore whether i could do anything with it and so i started listening to podcasts about it and one of the podcasts i found that came up was a guy merlin mann and he was just such a, a magnetic personality who represented this new world that I had discovered of of interesting tech people thinking smartly about 
technology and, and, and the future. And, uh, I never turned back. Well, actually I did turn back. And <laughs> so, I, so then I, I tried to, I, I kind of made, made it a goal over the next couple of years to explore, you know, the software side of things, the nonlinear side of storytelling. And when the iPhone SDK came out, I worked with a friend to develop an app for Twitter and I made the, so at that point there was a lot of talk about marketing your app and how you can't just rely on the app store to do all your marketing. You have to spread the word externally. And so we made a video and that video ended up getting a lot of attention. And then uh, my clients started, you know, clients, other companies doing tech stuff saw that video and saw the potential of, uh, of that mode of communication. And I started getting clients. And then over the next three years, it, it's all kind of unfolded into what it is now. I feel like I've told that story so many times that it just becomes <laughs> rote. And I apologize. You know, the Douglas Adams thing, uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide uh, author, that he said at some point he had told the story about the genesis of the book so many times that it had been erased from his memory. And all he had was the memory <laughs> of telling it. And he wasn't That's sure if right. it was factually correct anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. It happens to your life, though, because, well, people are fascinated with how someone – uh, you know, rises to attention because attention is a scarce commodity. And even I remember seeing the first Birdhouse app. I was uh, a video. I was probably uh, referred to it by um, John Gruber, most likely uh, from Daring Fireball. And it did have something fresh and different. There, there's this quantity. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to you in a moment. But there's a there's a there's a larger thing I've noticed is, and many of the people I've talked to for the podcast almost by accident is that people are tired of snark. They don't mind irony. They don't mind like clever use of metaphor, but they're tired of people being tired of things. And <laughs> Bird, the Birdhouse app video captured this sort of wonderful dry sense of things without making me go, oh God, not again. It was, it was like, oh, this is fresh and it's funny and it's not slapstick, but it's not telling me that life is horrible either. Yeah. It was meant to capture an excitement for an idea that we knew was going to be a new idea and somewhat challenging to just wholeheartedly accept without putting some thought into it. And I mustered as much excitement as I could. And my, my persona is just naturally very dry anyway. I mean, sometimes I'll laugh hysterically. I'll (laughs) cry a lot. (laughs) Mornings mostly before the family gets up. (laughs) You reserve that time to yourself. (laughs) And, uh, so I, I feel like there's just sort of, um, a dichotomy at play with how I attempt to present my excitement for an idea, but am held back by, <laughs> by the lack of expression in my, in my tonality and, uh, and in my face. Uh, even now I'll put myself on camera. We're, we're finishing a product video right now that I'm super excited about. I don't think I've ever been excited about a product in at least a few years and I put myself on camera because I wanted to be the guy who gets to, to tell you about this thing, mm. this thing, because I want to be, I want to take it out at parties and show all my friends. And, and, but still on camera, I'm like dry as a, what do they say? Dry, <laughs> dry as a doornail, I think is the expression. And, and I look like I'm half asleep the entire time. And it's like, what am I trying to prove? Who is, if I was not me, I would think I was a poser putting on this, this facade. I don't know, Christopher Walken's done pretty well with that, though, I think, too. <laughs> yeah, but at least he's got some dynamism in his 
voice and you know if he's explaining what this product is he's going to tell you that it's got a display on it he i don't is, have that i just he have is this. my favorite he is my favorite yeah. he's he is he's a wonderful actor because he does he has such that a that was my abraham lincoln by the way so i i well i felt a very civil war reenactor for a moment but it's <laughs> the most past i've been finding this funny other thing going on, which is as I talk to people who are entrepreneurs or who have found this kind of, I want to say, I keep talking about new connections with audiences. It's it's something that um, the internet facilitates to give a different, like new areas of exploration that didn't exist even a few years ago, like the sort of next flowering of internet communication. I keep finding filmmakers. I find people who I have no idea they went to film school. And then once you hear it, it makes perfect sense. Like Greg Pak, who writes comic books, is doing the Batman, Superman, uh, the latest series of that, which is pretty fabulous. Greg, one of the things, he went to film school, he made a movie that was well-received. And then, of course, he went into writing comic books. Mm-hmm. I just talked to David Malky, the guy behind Wondermark, the cartoon and the Machine of Death books. And uh, David Malky went to college for filmmaking, of course. And then it starts to become clear that so much of maybe what's going on today involves storytelling and does film school prepare you to tell a story really well is maybe that is that the common thread i don't know i i I think it's less causal than that i think there's less causality involved in that Mm. i think it's more about um the types of people that are in interested naturally in visual uh visual communication visual storytelling um but it opens up a discussion of a broader definition of cinema, really, mm. because I, per, I'm somebody personally who, who has a very loose interpretation of what cinema is. To me, cinema is just a telling of a story that's contained within a frame using, using images rather than words or sounds, you know, so, or you know, isolated sounds, and. So in that sense, I consider software cinema. Mm-hmm. I consider comic books cinema, and it, 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 I mean, I don't, I don't read comic books or graphic novels, but I do consider it a cinematic language. And so I think that people who are drawn to studying film in a formal way or informal are just people who are who are naturally receptive to that visual language in which you know, emotions are communicated within a box. Oh, I see. So is it more that, um, you know, I thought about it the other way around. I thought you go to film school and maybe you learn these principles, but is it more perhaps that people with an inclination to tell stories that way who who think about it that way, film school is the place that maybe they used to go to to be able to tell those stories? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot less learning in film school than you would think. (laughs) (laughs) Which lens you need to use. Well, I've also wondered, I heard Stephen Fry, who is in one of your videos, Megan Sumley, one of my, a great fan of his. I heard him speak after the premiere of the first film he directed about 10 years ago at the uh, Seattle International Film Festival. And one of the things he said I found, I, I think, very striking. I don't think I'd ever thought about it before. Anyone who went through film school knows anything about the industry. I'm sure you totally intuit or, or get this. Is He talked about how being a director, that he was essentially summoning this legion of specialties, that he had to know about you know, chemistry and photography and, mm-hmm. uh, and writing, like every kind of thing that we do almost industrially or creatively, he mm-hmm. had to be 
able to either hire the right person to do or be able to supervise those people himself. And I know that a film production is, and it's often literally, its own company. You're starting up a company for a mm-hmm. finite period of time. But do, is that maybe part of the direction of film school too, that if you have that mindset that you want to be able to summon all these forces around you? Is that only a director personality rather than, say, a more general film school attendee personality? Um, the director is the person who's the captain of the ship, and the captain has to know about everything from the top of the sail to the to the gully. Mm-hmm. Is a ship thing, um, <laughs> but I don't. But, Pontoon. I, but and so you know, in that sense, I don't think that maybe a a producer has to know quite as much about the practical practical aspects of filmmaking. But I think what's consistent is that people who go to to school for that go because they're interested in learning the language and, and learning the mechanics of, of the language or the language of the mechanics. And you, so you come across people like, oh, and, and not only learning them, but are also fascinated by every part of the process. So, you, you know, famously somebody like James Cameron or David Fincher, they know more about everybody's job on set than that person knows. <laughs> um, I think Kubrick was uh, similar in that way. But there's a balance between that and, you know, knowing what you want, knowing the language involved in doing everybody's job, but also allowing the masters of the craft in those specialized fields to do their best work. Hmm. Knowing, I think Stephen Fry probably has a way more scientific mind than I do. And so I don't tend to get as caught up on the, um, the engineering or technological aspects of image capture there's so much of that going on right now. And there probably already always has been since the dawn of filmmaking. But I don't tend to get caught up in the details of what sensor is in what camera and pixel resolutions. And I, I mean, to, I know lenses and I know, you know, what's called focal length, which is when you see a number before millimeters, that's, <laughs> that's the focal length. And you know, and, and you know that only because you have to associate a number. Um, with an emotional response given by that, but by the choice of that number. Uh, and it's very, it's very interesting, uh, that, that part of the creative process where you have to foresee in your mind's eye the emotional effect you're trying to achieve and then assign a score to it, assign a number. And you, you decide whether to put a 50 on the camera or, and, um, and back away from the subject a little bit or, or put a, a 21 on it and get a little closer. Or it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of fun. And I think about it every single time I use the microwave. I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't cook. I'll be honest. I don't at all. And I know there's a lot of feeling it out and intuiting timing in, in the kitchen. But what I do is microwave stuff a lot. And it's always kind of a fun challenge to be able to guess or not guess, but intuit the right number. Uh, to to dial in on the microwave before you, you know, make a hot pocket. <laughs> <laughs> it's either right lava or frozen, but you want to get right <laughs> in that sweet spot. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so much of what we do with computers is the same sort of thing in post production, where you're trying to uh, achieve an effect with the right amount of blur or the right amount of motion on a on a digital element in your frame, and so. You can go one by one incrementally typing in numbers or, or nudging the arrow keys. But at some point with enough experience in that, in the Gladwellian sense, you know exactly what number to 
to punch in and with a very small degree of, of error uh, by which you, you know that you would need to correct for and that's kind of the fun about getting good at something is knowing what numbers to assign to a very a very holistic process this may sound a little off topic and I, I'm setting up a callback for later about software so we'll, it'll it'll make sense it'll make sense when I say it to you I'm sure but <laughs> it I've, always does I feel like I've learned a lot recently even though I've I know used to have you know an analog camera like a Canon AE1 when I was in college I loved the thing and the control it gave me and it took me 20 years to get to a point where the current camera I have I have the same love for and one of the things to me, it seemed that the intimacy of being able to set the depth of field, which sometimes seems, or, or control that, which sometimes mm-hmm. seems like a very technical thing. And I wonder, as you talk about the, I mean, the camera lens length has to do with how, um, you know, the kind of view, maybe even some of the distortion or lack of distortion of it, where you sit with the camera relative to the subject. But I also wonder if it's what aspect of filmmaking and telling the story has to do with controlling that plane, like controlling what the viewer sees, what's in focus and what's out of focus. Mm-hmm. Is that is that part of your creative process? Tons of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, and some directors don't really think much about that at all. I like to think about it a whole lot. During the process, I'm not the person who actually touches the camera, who makes those shots happen and who affects those changes. That's the the either the operator or the or the director of photography, but they have to know exactly what tools to use to do it. It's really fun to watch because at the head of the camera department, you've got the director of photography. Under the DP, you've got the assistants who do things like, you know, control the focus of the lens, and they have to be really good at their job in order to hit the marks uh, of where the subject is and always keep it in focus so they don't blow a shot because a really an otherwise perfect take of performance and synchronicity of every element that needs to make its way into a frame for it to be magical can be great. And if the focus puller is off by a little bit, then they can ruin it. And sometimes you don't even know that until you're editing. It can be really sad. Uh, so there are people who do that. There are people who make sure that the camera is working properly. There are people who, um, you know, uh, operate the slate and make sure that all of the information for the camera is correct. And then there, and then there are people who move around all the lights and and all of the support system that that the lights sit on top of. And those are grips. And the and the people who control the electricity that generates all the light, that's the gaffer and the electrician. And all these people have to work together in a, in military style so that everybody knows the language and everybody knows what they're doing so that mistakes don't happen because there's so much margin for error on set. And not only error, but injury and <laughs> serious injury. <laughs> and, you know, things fall and things break and you it's, you have to build in some a line in your budget called loss and damages. And, and it comes up more often than you would think where somebody busts a piece of somebody's house that costs $2,000 <laughs> and you just have to build that into the budget. And... <laughs> so, you know, you, you wouldn't think that that's stuff that the camera department has to think of, but they do. Uh, and then for me, oh, and then, uh, so yeah, as you mentioned, there are all of these points of inflection that need to be controlled in order to achieve effect, like like depth of focus. So the DP has to know how much light is coming into the iris and what effect it's going to have to open or close the iris and still keep the exposure at the same place for the relative amount of contrast in the frame. And so they'll do things like put 
ND filters in front of the lens to cut down on the the light so that they can keep the iris open at the same way because the iris open to a certain uh, f-stop means that you're getting more or less shallowness of focus. And all of this stuff happens because it all has an emotional impact on the viewer. So as a director, it's your kind of job to know that stuff and then be able to communicate it to your collaborators who are actually operating the machinery. You know, it's it's funny as you described that I, you know, and, and this is, I'm so pretentious about this, but the the Walter Benjamin S. A. Uh, film in the age of mechanical or art in the age of mechanical reproduction. You know, it's something that's, I'm sure you probably read it in film school. Maybe. I don't know. It's, no. some, it's the kind of thing I read it in college and I come back to it again and again, much more so now when I was in college, it seemed less relevant. Now it seems very relevant everywhere because he was talking about among other, well, he was a communist and had very strong ideas about the nature of reproduction and, and so forth. But one of the things he talked about was the tyranny of the camera, that the camera forced you to view things in a certain way and it, and it assumed a relationship with the subject. And there's all this political stuff that gets involved, but hmm. there is that notion that you're, that the director, you know, the, the viewer is giving control over to the director there and, and giving themselves over to your vision of what this thing is, whether it's a short ad or a full length movie or a 3D extravaganza or whatever it is. is do you? Absolutely. They're, yeah, they're imposing their their vision in a very mechanical and, and literal way. But we give you that permission too, is that we walk in and say, you know, show us this thing and we're going to give ourselves up almost literally to you because we can't take that lens and move it around or change any of those parameters. We have to take that experience that you gave us. Oh, of course. But that's, that, uh, that's not... Um unique to cinema that's unique to to story you know Mm -hmm. Uh, any storyteller is imposing their vision in every single choice they make conscious or unconscious excellent well that's the callback i'll let's come back to that in software in a moment but the I, i was curious what did you expect to get out of film school and did you get that out of it yeah i guess that this comes back to where what we were initially talking about which is why do so many people and, uh, you know, how, why have you recognized that so many people came from film school or went to film school? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I think it's because uh, if you're fascinated by that language and, and that process, you want to not only learn everything you can about the process and the language, but you want to be around people who also are fascinated by it. Mm. Um, because you're, you know, in my case, I went as an undergrad to NYU and I was... 18 years old and sick of being around people who didn't want to talk about cool films all the time. And so I wanted to go to, you know, art school and, you know, and be, you know, and wear a beret and, and smoke clove cigarettes all the time with my, (laughs) and it turned out not to be that necessarily, (laughs) you know, it's not, it's not that it's not like, um, it wasn't just a whole bunch of people that were exactly like me. And, uh, it was, it was just a, a, va- a wide array of people who were fascinated by as as much of a range of tastes in filmmaking as exist. You know, you you can go to see you can go to the theater and see anything from um, you know a Polish art film to a Medea movie, mm. uh, and there are that many types of people in film school, and it's fun to engage with and as many of them as you can, except when you're a kind of a hard-headed 18-year-old kid and you think that 
you know, you're, you're, you know, and you're fairly solipsistic at that, or I don't, not you, I'm not implying that you were, although what? I've heard, no, <laughs> but me, <laughs> I was fairly solipsistic and hard headed about my high minded art, artful ideas. And, and so, uh, I tended to be very dismissive of other students who were just, who just wanted to make fun action movies or just wanted to, you know, be silly in front of the camera. And I was like, what? You are wasting my time. And that was a fun process. <laughs> you know, that's what art school is all about. I have a degree in art myself. I have a degree in graphic I, design. Uh-huh. And I, I did this, I think I did the same thing as I wanted to find people who thought about the way they looked the wor- at the world the same way. And I wanted to formalize what I understood so I could understand it better, maybe break it down better, and then mm-hmm. take the pictures in my head and make them real. I had this conversation. I have a, eight, a six-year-old and eight-year-old. I had this conversation with my younger son the other day where he was really frustrated about something he was drawing. And I said, are you trying to take something that's in your head and put it on paper and it's frustrating you that you can't? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God. It's, I was like, Rex, everyone feels that way. Mm-hmm. Everyone feels that way. He's kind of, you know, he's a little dubious, but I was like, you could spend, this is, so I said, I've spent much of my life trying to figure out how to better and better take what I think about mm-hmm. in whatever it is and put it on paper. And I, when you talk about film school that way, when I think about having gone through a graphic design program, I think it just feels like a refinement of that. Like I have, you've got the movie in your head. How mm-hmm. do you summon the 40 people <laughs> necessary to make it so other people can see it? Yeah. Well, isn't it funny? I mean, I've always thought of that frustration as a problem of technology that won't exist forever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so maybe explain that to Rex, that just wait it out at least like a decade or two. Tap into our brains and take pictures. It'll be great. Yeah. But yeah, it's that it's that direction, it's the intentionality and the translation of like this is. The, I think that's uh, from the profession I was in that I never actually practiced. This is why I'm so fascinated in accidental careers because I've never actually really worked as a graphic designer, despite having studied mm-hmm. it. Thought that's what my mm-hmm. career was going to be. Is that mm-hmm. the, the, there's so many connections you have to make the hand, the eye, these associations that are physical, and as you get more and more removed from them there are it's harder to create the same visual language in print or even online because we're removed from that manual or physical connection it, it your description of the filming process like it even when you have digital equipment so much of it still sounds intensely physical to me as you describe it oh yeah oh my god and that's the part that people who pay for this stuff don't quite understand is the mounds and mounds of heavy bulky cumbersome gear that it that is involved in in doing all this stuff all we see as viewers is the plane of the frame (laughs) we don't see behind or to the sides of the frame where there are literally 40 people and two trucks worth of grip and electric equipment and even the camera i mean the cameras are getting smaller and smaller of course but the support systems for the cameras are not Uh, they still it still requires in order to get a look and feel that exists uh, that that seems like it was done with a certain degree of intentionality and I guess solidity and and mass. You still need the same Fisher dolly that that weighs a ton <laughs> that you did fifty years ago. Uh, that that hasn't changed. I mean, it's every once in a while a new. Um, piece of technology, a new tool comes out that portends that that's, that is going to change at some point. And like things like the Steadicam or this new Mo- Movi rig that people are p- 
playing with that, you know, is, involves all sorts of intelligent gyroscopes and everything, those portend a future where uh, the support systems don't even have to exist in order to capture these these images with mass. But uh, it's it's a long ways away. I watched that um, great video that Peter Jackson made during the filming of The Hobbit. There was one in particular where I think it was 10 or 15 minutes long, and he explained the process of filming in 3D and mm-hmm. how many cameras they needed. I think they had 24 of the it's the red camera, right? The super mm-hmm. high res mm-hmm. cinema cameras that are now being used and the, the digital only. And I think they had to have 24 between the different kinds of shots, setups, locations, and backups to shoot. And he was describing, you know, how how you deal with uh, actual depth and portraying it in stereoscopic vision. And I thought, my God! So you have this digital technology. It simplifies one part of the chain, but it gives you all these new tools and options. And so the rest of the chain is now, again, becomes Baroque because it can be. You can shift the money or effort to these other parts that were maybe you didn't have as much uh, flexibility before. Right. And, and, um, they don't, to be, to, to be clear, they don't have 24 cameras on set with them because they're shooting with 24 cameras. Right. Uh, uh, they have 24 because there's economy of scale with, with doing that kind of stuff where it makes more sense financially to, to possess 24 bot camera bodies, each of which costs, you know, what a hundred grand <laughs> yeah. then, uh, and to be able to be, uh, agile in, in production to, to send a production unit out with a camera in advance to always be two steps ahead of the rest of the crew, then to have to wait for the, you know, the main camera to break down and then transport. And there's all this stuff that to you and me are, is, super expensive gear that we would be lucky to ha- to get our hands on one thing <laughs> where uh, on a pr- big production like that, it becomes a commodity and it makes more sense to just have five of them in the truck. Um, sometimes they are shooting with five. When you're making a film, you're just, you're burning. Oh, you're burning everything. There's so much waste. You're burning money, yeah. right? Like that's yeah. the, that's the thing is like every day you shoot. It's just, so if you, it makes more sense to have two extra $200,000 cameras or even 15 than to waste $2 million that day because you couldn't shoot. Right, absolutely, and um, oh, it's funny. You know, speaking of the red, the red is that camera that was sort of an experimental company when it first uh, was announced. What it seems like six years ago, maybe mm-hmm. six, seven, and started by J- Jim Gennard, the founder of Oakley, uh, because he was fascinated by cameras and imaging. And uh, when they first started being used in production. I've heard that a lot of camera rental houses would send out two of them uh, just just because you needed a backup because the first one was going to break down. Let's take a moment so that I can thank our sponsor, MailChimp. The people behind MailChimp appreciate creativity, chaos, and great ideas that defy the odds. More than 3 million people and businesses around the world are using MailChimp to send and design newsletters. That includes me. Teams can share feedback in real time to create campaigns and email subscribers. They've just released a new version of their free app, and they've redesigned the website to match. You can manage lists and campaigns and see the results in the app or at the site. Do you ever wonder, as I do, how MailChimp has such an amusing and consistent tone and how they communicate? Well, visit voiceandatone.com, its internal style guide that they've shared with the rest of us. On top of that, MailChimp also distributes hats for cats and small dogs. MailChimp, listen hard, change fast. Thanks for supporting the show. And now, let's get back to Adam. 
but people love them, right? I mean, that's that vision thing. Like we talk about the, the artistic vision is if you have that picture in your head, the red apparently delivered something that was, I mean, there's the high tech kind of fun aspect that for early adopters of people who always love that, but that's not everybody. There had to be something about it that let people express a different vision or, or maybe it was just pure efficiency than the equipment that was out there before. Does, does the red have some particular advantage? Um, no, it was just op- it was offering a certain set of tools to people in a package that hadn't been presented before because mm-hmm. the, the camera imaging uh, industry has always been the domain of the, the big players like Sony and Panasonic and Airy and Pan- Panavision and all of these giant uh, monolithic companies that have been around for ages. And it was just exciting to the industry, to the filmmakers that – this new Maverick company was coming out and promising all this stuff in a very small and affordable, relatively affordable package. Prior to the Red being announced, people, when the big studios were experimenting with shooting digitally instead of on film, you had cameras that were like the Viper and the Genesis that were these, they, they were hugely expensive and didn't work that well and there were artifacts and there was a lot of discussion about the quality of digital versus film at that point because digital really did look worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just fun. But of course, if you're a technologist and a, and a futurist as well as a filmmaker, you don't care so much. You're willing to forgive more that there's artifacting and uh, and you even embrace that a little bit. And, you know, people were making feature films on mini DV be- way before the red was announced, and we sort of embraced that as an aesthetic. Well, and now um, we have so the iPhone it was just aesthetic. fun. It was fun. The what's that? The well, iPhone so aesthetic. Well, yeah, we have a bit of the iPhone. Well, I think that's worn off a bit, but there was the iPhone aesthetic for a bit when people were like, "Look, I can carry this tiny thing around and make movies from it because it's not. It's not to be great, but it lets me have this portability and sort of lack of interface between me and the rest of the world." Absolutely, and. I mean, as a student of cinnamon, I was that cin- as a student of cinnamon. I went to cinnamon school. Delicious. And, yeah, as a student of cinema, that was always sort of the main points of fascination for me. Was how with the first times that I realized that different that film looked different than video. I apologize. Uh, somebody just buzzed up. Oh, Let no, me just I get can, that. No, I'm no, just. Oh kidding. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to get that. I have people for that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the first time that I realized as a kid that film movies that were shot on film, you know, movies look different than the home video camera that my dad had, uh, and then starting to explore why and really drill into what technological disparities exist that I can know about that affect me differently emotionally. You know, what the, the first time you make the connection that 24 frames per second feels different from 30 frames per second, where the first time you see television from Europe, you know, and compare it to television from the U.S., and realize that there are different frame rates, and that's why everything that you see on PBS has a different feel to it than hmm. any any feature film that you've seen before or any American television. Those are all hugely, those were all hugely impactful to me as a as an appreciator and a filmmaker because then you can learn to embrace those differences and and incorporate them into your aesthetic choices. And then people have to keep learning as new technologies sort of encompass talking about the Hobbit. I went to see it 
in um, 3D high frame rate. And mm-hmm. uh, I, the comment I read, I think it was on Slate, someone said the opening scenes at least were like watching Australian daytime mm-hmm. soaps. And it's mm-hmm. it was so garish. It made fake – so the art of film uh, – I mean films like Cobbett, let's say, is to make fake things look real. So Gandalf's mm-hmm. staff – is fake and they paint it and do other things to make it look real on film. But the problem with the high frame rate particularly seemed to be that then fake things looked fake. And I could see all of the pores on Bilbo's face and it was mm-hmm. so bright. And it was so, it was like the artifice of film had been torn off the screen. Then when it got darker, it was much more, a little video game-ish because it was so, um, so the motion was so smooth. I had nothing to compare it to in my mind, accept it. So these revolutions come all the time. Different technologies are developed. People, how do you develop this a working relationship with these when you have new tools with these the the consequences like that? Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's a it's a matter of embracing them and sort of learning how to manage expectations on the audience's part, which Peter mm-hmm. Jackson sort of found out the hard way, right? But anyway, I, I'm sure he was expecting it. He had yeah. to have been expecting it. Nobody can be, you know, that much in a bubble that they don't expect that those sorts of choices are going to have a, a negative impact immediately uh, in the immediate future. I mean, the same can be said for stereoscopic or any of these lang- visual languages that are emerging is that there are always going to be people who like the old way better than the new mm-hmm. way. And part of being an artist, I think, is learning how to negotiate that and navigate through those expectations in a way that you're not setting yourself up for failure or disaster. Well, so we talked a bit about film school, and then we know that you got into this running this video business for for three plus years now. What was the gap in there? I know, I mean, you went into the field, you started working as a visual effects editor. And it seemed, I know from another interview, you talked about kind of giving up that maybe you didn't think you had the personality to become a director, that you weren't as aggressive right. as these other guys and gals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think the landscape for directors was, was probably a lot different even five five years ago than it is now where the tools allow really anybody to have that authorial directorial vision and distribute it for people to see. So it used to be that you know, there was a time where directors were um, an ascot and jawed person and <laughs> shouted through a bullhorn. And then there was a time after that where directors wore Steven Spielberg, uh, you know, aviator caps and, and you know, sat in their director's chair and, and like had intimate one-on-one talks with their child stars. And but, but consistent to all of these personality types is that they're all big. They're all big people, you know, big egos, big personalities with a whole lot of confidence. And because the the stage is huge, but when the stage gets smaller and there are more stages to stand on, you don't need to be as big a personality anymore. And so that's why there was an opportunity open for me and for a whole new generation of directors to go and exercise their they're speaking of the visual language in, in places where people would actually listen. So I always thought, you know, I worked for a couple of big personalities, uh, you know, directors who, and I, and I was around directors all the time coming from the commercial world where they, they really just had all the confidence in the world, Hmm. despite where their career was happened to be at the time. 
And I just thought, that's what you have to do, and that's what these are the, you know, you have to take these types of meetings and work with these types of sales reps and, you know, schmooze the client and do all this kind of personality work and salesmanship in order to get, you know, into, into the next phase of your career. That's not for me. That's not something I could ever do. I'm going to be behind a computer for the rest of my life. And then everything kind of came together in the right way at once so that it didn't have to happen that way. Who who's your collaborator on the Birdhouse app? I've actually forgotten. I know it's somebody who's well known in the Mac field. You know, I forgot too. I have no idea. <laughs> that poor bastard. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was Cameron Hunt. Um, uh, you have forgotten. I, no, yeah, Cameron Cameron Hunt, and he had he was a designer uh, living in not in in Newburgh, Oregon. Is that is it Newburgh? Oh yeah, the, on the coast in the beautiful yeah. coastal town. Yeah, it's got a great, yeah. that's a great place. And he was, you know, he Newport. was doing design. Newport, Oregon. Newport? No, I don't no, think so. Oh, he was Newberry. Oh, that's a terrible town. No one wants. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, a small town in <laughs> small Oregon, town, Oregon. say. And he was mostly doing um, Tumblr themes, like designing Tumblr things. He dropped out of school. Uh, he was still like maybe twenty or twenty-one. And I had hired him to do uh, t- my Tumblr theme, and it was fun. And then the iPhone SDK came out, and he and I were texting one night, and I was like, "I, what do you know about you know, making apps? And he was like, I don't know. I was thinking of getting into it. I have an idea. I said, oh, I have an idea also. Oh, yeah? On the count of three, say your idea. <laughs> and it turned <laughs> and we both had this, and we both said, you know, it's this idea that's totally, probably totally stupid, but it's for – you know, writing, jotting your ideas down for your Twitter posts before publishing them. And we just decided, okay, let's have a go at learning how to code in Cocoa and Objective-C. Oh, my God, really? So you yeah. just jumped, so you jumped into that. We, we both jumped into it, and I fell to my failure and didn't learn a damn thing, and he learned everything there was to know pretty quickly. So I kind of served that role. He's the perfect lab partner is what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And the way it worked out, and I never I never put a, a word to it at that point, but when we collaborated on this app, we both kind of had ideas about how it should look and feel, and he was the one who could translate all that stuff into code. And you know how Gruber and and Whiskus and Brent Simmons are, you know, our partners – in their app Vesper, yeah, and Gruber calls himself the director of the app. That's essentially what I was uh, at that point. I mean, we were co-directors, really, but I was just kind of I, I, you know, I put myself to the task of making sure it felt a way that I would want an app to feel when I was using it, and uh, that was that was that. It's well, it was an interesting time, right? Because uh, uh, Twitter had just started its curve. Up And there were already people who were Twitter, let's say, celebrities or personalities that Twitter, I think, because of its recommended follow list, they'd sort of, not intentionally, I guess, exactly, but anointed people. I've met some of them. I know some of them who are pretty cool. And some were, let's say, previously unheralded. They were never mm-hmm. known. Um, what is it? Bad Banana, for instance, and um, mm-hmm. uh, Michelle Catalano and uh, Jeffrey uh, – I was Sweeney. Sweeney, yeah. And he, I yeah. mean, all these really interesting people, and and mm-hmm. they suddenly had a million people follow, or you know, hundreds of thousands, like a million mm-hmm. people following them, mm-hmm. an audience that you could have spent your whole life building up in some mm-hmm. field. And um, and I know people like uh, John Moltz, I think you may know, is a very funny mm-hmm. guy and writes sort of Mac humor, among other things. Uh, there was this 
there was a sort of pan-up demand to serve the audience well by not just writing stuff and posting it. And the apps were sort of, they weren't crappy, that, but they weren't very good. And uh, I don't think things had like draft functions. So it seems like Birdhouse, you had this idea that maybe we should have those what is it? The moments on the uh, stairs, the um, where you remember something later, you want to say it, but it's not. The oh, esprit d'escalier, esprit d'escalier. <laughs> yes, right. Perfect French phrase. And so, Birdhouse seemed to be that app. It's like you can think of. Stefan was that pronunciation, okay? <laughs> That's Stefan Angelval <laughs> from a previous episode of the New Disruptors in the room. Esprit d'escalier, esprit d'escalier. Good. We've got a pronunciation excellent, perfected by the French. And but I think that moment, like that, this would let you. You store offline ideas. So I'm assuming this is something you guys both wanted that you had all these ideas, these, these tweets you wanted to make and just posting, you know, half written ones or scribbling them down was not the solution. Right. Well, mostly it was, it was generated from the, uh, 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 like I actually could be traced to a moment where mm. the first, the first time I hung out with Scott Simpson, my friend Scott Simpson, who used to work for Apple for iTunes. And then uh, we did a podcast, You Look Nice Today with Merlin together for for some years and uh scott came to la and we decided to go see a improv show at the the ucb theater and we're sitting in the audience next to each other waiting for the show to start and he took out his iphone as one does when one is socially <laughs> uncomfortable and he jotted down something in his notes app and you know it was like it was clearly like a, an idea for a tweet for later and i was like you do that too Huh. Uh, he's like, of course, and and that, that, this was before copy and paste uh, in the iPhone. This was the first. Oh God, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, there was a before copy and paste, and so uh, that was just sort of the the light bulb aha moment that this could be useful. Not may, maybe not to the millions of people or or hundreds of thousands that use Twitter at that point, but uh, at least to me and my friends, people who are. Trying to be, um, I don't want to say trying to be witty because that's unfair. I don't mean like, I don't mean that a derogatory way. Oh no, it's very much, very much so. Trying to be witty, yes. But it's the you know everybody wants to be at the Algonquin uh, round table, but you know yeah, everything so trips off our oh, tongues is not such a bore, Glenn. Oh. <laughs> I have to live up to my Alexander Wollencott, uh reputation. The but the, you know we everything that trips off even the like wittiest, fastest people's. Tongues isn't, you know, gold. And so this is sort of, it seemed like a way to store that for later to hone it. Because people were trying to develop an audience. No one knew what Twitter was for. We just still don't know what Twitter is for. But mm -hmm. if you were trying to create an alternate career for yourself from something you were doing or build an audience, Twitter seemed to be a way to at least acquire people who then might be interested in what you do. And thus, this fit neatly with, seemed like a lot of people who had that position in their lives. I mean, it sort of meshes up with kind of where you went too, is that being able to to acquire followers was a mark of attention. I, I keep coming back to attention. Attention is such a scarce commodity. If people pay attention to you and you waste it, it seems like a shame, like it's gone forever. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think it was just, it was for people who wanted an, an outlet for creative expression and uh, probably a lot of people who would read humorists. You know, I when I was in high school and college, I read a lot of Woody Allen and Fran Lebowitz, and I had this anthology of American humor that I would like, that was kind of like my Bible. And, and in high school, I would like write, you know, when it was time to write an essay, I would try to make it as funny as possible, much to, I'm sure, all my teachers' delight. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so there are people who are just like, who find it fun and enjoyable to 
write funny things using word, you know, using words. And uh, Twitter was just a low, very such a low barrier to entry for those people. Work, you know, workshop your ideas, however modest they would be. And mm-hmm. um, I just like the discoverability too. Is when attention gets focused on someone who is clever, has funny or interesting things to say. The fact that they can build. Uh, an audience and then they can turn into a career or part of a career. That's a very weird phenomenon. It used to be highly limited and now it seems much more dispersed that you can, that that happens. It is. Now it, it feels to me that the, the, the culmination of this all happened a few years ago maybe, but I don't know. Do you feel like how is Twitter? I, I don't want this to evolve into a, <laughs> this conversation about Twitter, but do you think it's the same or is, is it, just become something different, a different beast by by 2013. Something shifted when a lot more people got on. So it seems yeah. flatter to me in a way. And it seems, mm-hmm. you know, it is more of a broadcast medium, I think. But I also, I think communities tend to carve themselves out. And I, the discoverability is less. I mean, there's that great essay. Uh, I've probably re- like referenced it 10 times in this podcast. But it's the uh, Clay Shirky's Power Law Curve uh, essay from 10 or 12 years ago or longer, where he's looking at blogs and he said, you know what, this is all going to shake out. Yeah, yeah, everyone thinks it's a level of influence, but the power law always works. Things that get a lot of attention get more attention, and you're going to mm-hmm. have a bunch of blogs at the top that like, you know, 20 or something, and you're going to have a million that are off on the long tail. And mm-hmm. Twitter, for a while, it, it had a much fatter middle part, and I think the, mm-hmm. that really shifted up. So you've got Bieber's on the top, and you have people who can't get arrested on the on the long tail, but there still <laughs> is a big bulge in the middle of the beast that, uh, I mean, I have, I think, 12,000-something followers. And it has changed my life because I can bring just enough attention and audience to some of my projects that they become successful enough to work where before, without that audience, I'm not sure I could get a fire ignited under them. So even at that (laughs) level, it's still worthwhile. Yeah, for sure. But people, if you have 100,000, 200,000, I mean, I've got friends who are authors where if they're in the couple hundred thousand levels, they know their book will sell better than it did before they had that, even if it's a very similar book. They can reach out to their followers and get enough of a boost in sales or interest that it really changes the trajectory of their career now. Yeah. When I was, uh, this must have been two years ago or something, I was at the Twitter office just having a meeting and I don't, something inconsequential, but I met with essentially the guy who was in charge of that curating that list that I don't even know if the list exists anymore, but the recommended followers list. And he said, so, you know, do you want to, you know, do you want to, you know, do you want to be on that list? I don't, I mean, I could, cause I could, do you want to, and, and I just thought, uh, you know, I had ever, I had the impulse to say, yeah, yeah, get me on that list. And I just remembered hearing Sween say that his, once he was on the list, he never, was able to use Twitter the same way again. Yeah. And then I just decided on the spot, no, I'm a man of principles. I don't need that in order <laughs> for my, you know, gauge my self-worth. But there's not a day goes by that. I don't want to go and call that guy up if I remembered who it was and tell him, <laughs> get me on the list. Try to make it retroactive to two years ago, please. Because that, just that number is your currency in a way, you know. And uh, shoot, if I had 200,000 followers on Twitter now, it would be – you know, I, I can rule the world, I'm pretty sure. 
That's right. Well, but now here's the thing. I think I'm always interested in celebrity. Like, what does it actually translate to into your life? And, you know, for some people, it's misery and some people it's <laughs> glorious. And it depends on the level and the attention you get, whether you're recognized and, and all that. And, you know, you, I've, you mentioned, I'd love to talk about You Look Nice Today because it's such a, I feel like when I listen to that show, it's like you guys all fell slightly asleep and then started talking. It was this sort of part of the <laughs> consciousness that's usually slightly controlled, just interacting because I'm like, oh, I don't even, wow. But it's, and it's a, you know, you guys have such different personalities and you, you pulled this thing together for a while. You know, I'm, again, I assume there was no plan. There was no great plan with it. But what did you get out of, of doing this? Because clearly it did bring some celebrity. You're better known because of this than, sure. uh, than perhaps without it. But what did you, what did you hope to do? Was it just kind of like a fun thing with some friends? And, and, and you mentioned Merlin early on as being one of your inspirations to even start down this path. Absolutely. I mean, I was, I adore both of those guys. They're my favorites. And it was, for me, it was like just an, an incredible opportunity to do something creative with them. But it was also, it was an opportunity to explore making something in a new medium that was still, you know, just largely untested and largely undeveloped. And so we wanted to make something that, unlike anything that had been heard before, and it, got, it came to, it became clear very quickly when the three of us started just tossing around funny jokes and saying, you know, just basically just engaging in conversation on mic, that the dynamic was such that it was unlike anything that had had been heard before. And I was really, all of us were really proud of do, of that, of making something in a new medium that was, that a lot of people were engaged in and a lot of people responded to. And it just felt for a time that we were like, we were doing something new and you always kind of want to do something new as a creator. You always want to do something that nobody has done before yet with that, with a language. And then, I mean, that doesn't change the fact that every single time we recorded, it was nerve wracking for me because I was all, cause I'm mm -hmm. just the pressure to, to try to be funny and say clever things is huge. And luckily those two guys talk a lot more than I do. So, <laughs> I, I didn't really have to. And and also, luckily, I had the control of the editor where I could just cut out most of the terrible attempts at, at being funny and make everybody sound more clever than they were. But it doesn't change the fact that it was a monumental amount of work for me to do on every episode. Yeah, you, I saw an interview. You said it was like, what was it, 45 minutes out of uh, it took eight hours of editing to get yeah, to about exactly. five minutes. Yeah, that was the that was the ratio. But I think that's great. You know, I've worked in public. Well, I've worked with people in public radio, and they often have these crazy ratios. That's why you know people get paid poorly in public radio, but <laughs> they also they love it to death because it lets them tell stories in a way that you you know before podcasting became popular, you couldn't tell. And there is that ratio. Like I forget what it is, but it's often like one hour to three to five. Hours. I, I think on this show, we wind up putting – I have an audio engineer and I listen to all the programs completely after they're done. I mean we put in between six and eight hours and maybe up to eight or nine considering the, the prep and other things to get each episode out. And there's been this podcast renaissance in the last year, year and a half and I've wondered if 
the amount of sponsorship money that came in has given us the freedom to afford to put more time in and to do more editing. That's actually been this virtuous loop that's made podcasts better. Because not that all oh, podcasts absolutely. were recorded right to, you know, recorded and aired without any editing before, and many still are. But that the, the amount of editing in podcasts before about two years ago, it didn't seem like the economics were there, except for people out of pure love in most cases. Oh, absolutely. If people were putting in the time and effort to, to edit, to, to make things sound good, then they were doing it out of the love and not because mm-hmm. they were being compensated. And for me, it was mostly just about proving a point that, you know, I was an editor as a, you know, as a picture editor and I knew the amount of work that goes into making motion look good, uh, you know, and, and, and the ratios of shooting to presenting and, there was an awful trend of the early podcasters just put, you know, sitting down in front of a mic and recording it poorly and then, and then just putting it out there and saying, here's my show. Well, no, that's not your show. You only did like 10% of the work and now you got to actually make it good. And the reason you do that is out of respect to your listeners mm-hmm. and out of respect to the form. And, uh, you know, just as you were talking, I was just thinking that, uh, I think there's a point to be made about like some of my best work comes out of <laughs> belligerence and like <laughs> resentment of people doing things wrong. And so some of my best work goes out of like comes from correcting other people's mistakes and going, no, that's wrong. So let me, so let me sit down and do it for you. And then, and then, then you have something to prove and then, you know, you're going to do it to the best of your ability because you've, you know, put a stake in the ground. So that's, you know, I I wanted to re- sort of reverse that trend in our own small way and show that out of respect for our audience, we have to do it. And like, uh, you know, when we first recorded an episode, Merlin uh, handed off the the raw audio to a friend of his who was just nice enough to, again, in his own spare time, sit down and chop through it and string it all together into a show. And I listened to it and I just identified a hundred different places where it would be funnier if it was cut tighter mm. or it was be, it would be funnier if we mixed out the overlapping and, or if we moved that, that laugh, you know, a hair later. So it was in response to this joke and not that bad joke. And, and so I just said, let me do it. Let me do it. <laughs> and I was really busy at work too, but I, but I did it. And that became sort of a passionate you know, something to prove. And that's just like the, the whole rest of the show came out of res- that resentment. It's uh, wow. That's really, it's very interesting because I think your show among others, I think raised the bar for what a podcast had to be. And I get, I like this. I don't want to criticize people for like between 2003 and 2009 or something. It's like, it's not, and there's nothing wrong with the podcasts that were done. Then I was involved in some of them and so forth. But I think because audio equipment became, uh, cheaper and, and more focused on podcasting and the tools have become better and they're more accessible to more people. Like ev- like the podcasts that were good and where people had the time to devote in them, they became better and better. And then we'd have a show like You Look Nice Today and it would be like, you'd listen to that and then you listen to something else say, well, that sounds like crap. These mm-hmm. guys are doing something right because it's, in some realms, like phone calls, the cell companies made us accept worse and worse calls because the networks couldn't make better ones. But like we know what radio sounds like. We know what good video looks like. We can throw in a Blu-ray. We can go to a digital movie theater. We can turn on the radio or listen to you know an NPR podcast. We know what it's supposed to sound like. So we have a basis of comparison. And I think people 
can discriminate that even if they can't consciously put their finger on it, they're like, this does not sound as good as this. So I'm going to listen to this thing that sounds better. Or at least I yeah. think so. Yeah, absolutely. Because the trend seems to be there. We're hearing better and better podcasts. I have way too many podcasts. I, I'd have to basically give up all work to listen to the number of podcasts I want to right now every week. Doesn't seem supportable. I don't listen at all. I don't listen to podcasts at all anymore because I'm always, you know, my my profession doesn't allow me to, and I don't have a commute anymore. Mm -hmm. So I and I have a I have a new baby at home, so I can't <laughs> ignore him. Congratulations. <laughs> That's where, that's where the editing time used to go, too, is you've had the time to edit. Then you have a baby. But it's hard yeah, to get that. Yeah. That's where the hours go. Yeah, there's a window in your life where you can ignore most other things, and, I, and that window is closed for me. Uh, you know, it's funny. We've talked very little about what you're actually doing now. We talked about what you did and kind of how it led up to it. I mean, I'm not saying – it's like this is obviously the most rich and interesting period in your life today, especially with a new child that makes everything sort of richer on top mm -hmm. of everything else. You have you have a reason to do what you do for every day. But, you know, when I look at the, the sandwichvideo.com site and I see the dozens of videos – that you've produced in every one of them, the ones that I've seen, which are many of these, I could get the picture in my head. I think about the Tonks video, Sumley, the original Birdhouse one, the Square, original Square one, Flipboard. Like, you don't do the same thing in every video, of course, but there's something about, I don't know, I can't define your style because I don't have the language to do it in, but there's something that's both distinct and unique because no two are alike, but I know when you've done it. I don't know how that how that shakes out. If that's in your thinking, if you're trying to create a distinct style, or if it's an outgrowth of just how you approach the medium. Yeah, I think it's just a natural outgrowth of how I think about stuff. And I've, I, I think that if I try to fake that, or if I try to work in somebody else's voice or approach then it doesn't work as well or it comes off as inauthentic or embarrassing. Um, I mean, I, when I say my voice, I, 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 I don't direct everything that we do and increasingly less and less. Mm. We work with just a lot of, uh, of other directors and, but I'm, I creative direct everything that we do. And so I just like, I'm this sort of standards chief, I guess. One thing I noticed from video to video, I, 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 or at least, I mean, I'm thinking like I've probably seen 40 of these, maybe more, is that um, is there's a stillness. You seem unafraid to let there be silence or a small, quiet amount of sound. You don't seem to need to fill every space. Is that an intentional or an outgrowth? Um, I think it's, I don't, I think it's, <laughs> it's different. It comes from the same, uh, I think it comes from the same taste as I would put into You Look Nice Today, where we would have mm. sometimes long, protracted, awkward silences and, and use those to fill, you know, I mean, they're, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the it's the notes you don't play. I love any opportunity I get to say that. That's good, but now we have to have the long silence, and then <laughs> I can't I can't take it. It's but I I I think the visual language you've come up with, and I think has that audio part to it. So as we as you talk about how much effort you put into you look nice today, I think about that now. I'm replaying the video. I'm replaying the videos in my head. Your best, greatest of hits in the YouTube in my mind. <laughs> and I think, well, there is that aspect of it. Just that nice little the the sound, the pauses, the quiet, the the music, and um. But the there is also the tempo too. Is that there's you don't try to rush me. I mean, even there's some that I know are a little more frenetic because of the nature of the thing. But a lot of these 
videos, you're trying to introduce a concept, a new thing to people. Many of the companies you work with I've written about extensively because they're in these new, you know, sharing economy or peer-to-peer spaces like, uh, you know, Uber, for instance, or Lyft or uh, uh, Airbnb. These are companies that need to explain to people why what they're doing is not weird. Do, do you have to approach that in a different way when you present the video or when you present a, a plan to create a video? for things like that, where the concept, you just have to convince people this is not strange to have strangers come into your house and stay there for a while and they pay you. Yeah, absolutely. You you have to understand that people learn at a, at a certain pace and grasp concepts in a certain order, and you can't put the last concept first, or else it's all going to fall apart. And there's going to be the opposite of understanding. There's going to be a resentment. So I think that I just consider myself my audience and you know, I've always said that I pay attention to the first time I hear about a product. It usually get the process goes like this. I get an email and it says, Hey, we would like to make a video. We're working on a startup. We, um, when can we schedule some time to talk? And then we get on a, f- and you know, I, first as I look at the, what their company name is and if it sucks and I, then I say, I'm sorry, we're super busy right now because I don't want to work with a company with an embarrassing name. I just oh, don't want man. to do it because that's step one, you know, get your name right and then and then work on the rest. But then, um, you know, I get on the phone and they tell me about the thing and I pay attention to myself listening to the and understanding the thing in the right order. Mm. And then I just apply that learning process to the communicating of the idea in the video form, hopefully in the right order. And sometimes they have to correct for it a little bit. The client has to correct for it and they say, well, no, we've, we tend to find that our audience responds to this word instead of this word, or they don't really want to think of it as this. And this is why, but sometimes they have great points, you know, and sometimes they say, Oh my God, I didn't even think of that. And sometimes they say, what are you kidding me? Are you so tone deaf about your own thing? You've, you've spent so much time with it, you've totally lost touch of, lost sight of what's important and why people are going to respond to it. There's a back and forth process and you're, you engage with them, you challenge them about what they're actually saying sometimes because of what you hear. Absolutely. And I can be a real bulldog about it too. I can be a real son of a bitch and I don't like doing that, but it's just kind of my instinct where I, I feel like I've done enough of these that I know that I have, that I, you know, like the power of no, like the, you know, it's such, it's so empowering to be able to walk away from a project and say, you, you came to me because you trust that I have good instincts about stuff. And now you want to ignore my instincts. Well, I don't have to do your thing. <laughs> there's, there's a German film uh, called, I want to say advertising man, something <laughs> like that. It's about a, a kid who accidentally gets hired by a firm. He wanders in with his portfolio and he gets hired on an Opal ad and he has this mm-hmm. great idea that he steals from his girlfriend who's an art student and then watches it be completely distorted and horribly taken over in front of his eyes and it's it's the most excruciating but probably realistic thing that happens in kind of the the boiler room of the like the major advertising agencies that mm-hmm. have to steamroll these things your process it seems smaller more intimate <laughs> more direct <laughs> yeah it's definitely more direct i don't tend to work as much with committees and that's that's just out of that's because I've gotten lucky. But there's conversation and everything and I'm I'm wrong on a constant basis, so I'm always like you know, I don't I, I I hopefully I'll never lose touch with the fact that 
I can easily stand corrected. That's a wonderful position to be at at this point because the op, you, you could feel that everything your life had led up to you being anointed as correct now because you're so yeah. successful. Uh, wouldn't that be terrible though? Because then you, <laughs> the next thing that happens is you become irrelevant because you start making bad work. That's some people do that. They get to the apex of their career early on and then spend 40 years doing the same thing over and over again. But you want to challenge yourself. Yeah, you want to challenge yourself and you want to sort of hedge your bets against your your irrelevance and always kind of assume that even you you dis, even though you disagree intuitively there might be a point. You might be wrong. And god, that my my greatest fear is of losing touch with that truth that I just that, that I either get I get old enough or grumpy enough or or wealthy enough to think that all of those things mean that I, you know, uh, mean that I'm always right. And then, yeah, and then I lose everything. Well, when you start traveling the world with someone who draws a hot bath for you 24 hours a day on demand, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll know. That's a true story. I won't tell you who it's attached to. Not a filmmaker. Oh, amazing. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I find that my best security against that is just having – is sharing my home with a partner who always keeps me in check. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, uh, I'll send people to um, – if they haven't – if they don't realize, let's put it this way, everyone's seen your videos. If they're on the internet, if they're listening to the show, if they're not an 89-year-old grandmother who has never been on the internet, if they're the 89-year-old grandmother who spends all her time surfing on the net, they've seen your videos. And I'll, I'll send them to the links and then they'll say, oh, that, that one and that one and that one and that one. And thank you so much for sharing how you work. I think it's just, I, it's lovely, basically. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It's been a, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure. The New Disruptors is a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent that produces five feature articles every two weeks for two bucks a month. Visit the-magazine.org slash free to read some previous articles and sign up for a free seven-day trial. Detailed show notes are found at newdisrupt.org, that's N-E-W-D-I-S-R-U-P-T dot O-R-G, where you can also find our back catalog and subscribe to the podcast via our RSS feed in your favorite podcasting application. You can also listen to episodes on the webpage or download them directly. If you have the time, please review us on iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. If you have comments, questions, or criticisms, click the contact link on our webpage or email us at nd at newdisrupt.org. Would you like to sponsor this show? We'd be glad to have you. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G.com for more details. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.